You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Antonio Alston, who is an associate director of planning and strategy at Wavemaker. If I mentioned the term targeted advertising to you, you'd probably think of all those custom ads that pop up in your social media feed. You know, the ones that show you an item that you recently searched for on the internet. But what if I told you that what you see online is a direct result of not just your search history, but a number of different data points that have been gathered about you. It's a bit creepy, yes, but it's interesting stuff. And as you'll soon find out, it's an area of expertise for Antonio. Like a true 26er, Antonio has built his advertising career from the ground up. But if you're an avid listener of the show, you already know that it was not a straightforward path. Antonio graduated from Penn State with a BA in telecommunications in the middle of the Great Recession, and it took some time to find his footing. He went from being a video journalist to working in finance to eventually landing an entry-level gig at an advertising firm. That process alone took about four years, but he has consistently climbed the ladder since then and is making a name for himself at one of the largest media agency networks in the world. So let's jump right into how he did it. Take a listen and enjoy. Antonio, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is some of the former guests, uh, Stefan Dingle. <laughs> trash, trash guests. <laughs> I need him to know this. Make sure this gets into his podcast downloads. Uh, Larry Scott Blackman, trash. Uh, John Burnett, absolute trash. <laughs> um, and that's really just where I want to start this whole interview. So to our avid listeners of the show, um, those are some great guests, but you might not have figured out the connection yet, but we have yet another alpha on the show. Oh, what? Oh, I didn't even notice that. That's crazy. And, that's you know, crazy. they, they got to shade each other. So that's mm-hmm. what that about. I mean, I don't even know if what you did even goes with the, the spirit of the brand, but DeMarcus and I clown each other often, even on air. So you might be the first guest to actually clown other guests, which is great. Oh, yeah. I'm coming straight for the next. hundred <laughs> percent. And don't. by the time we halfway through this, I'm going to have a lot to say to Max. So don't worry. He's going to try to grab the mic. Oh, <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. I can feel it. I mean, the, the banter that you guys have off uh, off the mic, I already know what's up. I, I hear a lot of it. I even get a screenshot a time or two that gets sent to me. So I know what's about to go down. Snitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me, who is Antonio Alston? Uh, Antonio Alston is a young man from the North Bronx who made his way into college, um, into the advertising and marketing media world, and now is, can really be summed up by going from doing hoodlum things when he's 16 to having a 15-pound dog that he naps with on the weekends. Well, I mean, I think the dog is just indicative of just being an upwardly mobile Black person in New York City because people love their dogs. The joke was, I did not want this dog. Mm-hmm. I fought this dog tooth and nail. And now when it's cold outside, I bundled the dog up in my coat. <laughs> Let me tell you. So I looked into the dog. I looked into a dog. I was like, okay, you know, it might be good to have some kind of companion. Let me see what's out there. And just because of the person that I am, you know, I wanted a purebred dog. So the dog was going to be expensive. I looked at a few different breeds. But then I realized, okay, I'm not home enough to just like have a dog walker. So let me look into doggy daycare. When I looked into the cost of doggy daycare for Monday through Friday, and then the cost of them dropping the dog off if you can't be back by like 6 p.m., that was the end of my consideration of having a dog. Listen, it escalates (laughs) quickly. And I'm coming as the halfway deadbeat 
uh, pup dad because my girl got this dog and I listen, I'm not putting any money on this. You know, I'm already broke. <laughs> but I'll walk her, I'll feed her, and I'll love her. Uh, but yeah, the, the cost that my girl shows me is that she's paying right now. I was like, yo, I don't understand why you, you know. committed to this, but you know, I'm happy to have the dog here now. Yeah, no, the vet bills, the 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 regular care for the dog and grooming when you go on vacation. I'm not paying to board somebody or an animal while I'm actually paying to go on vacation. So yeah, I'm, I'm not about that dog life. Yeah, but this is a piece that you didn't even get to, right? Because it's one thing to get the dog, but then you got to get into the doggy social circles, yeah, right? Yeah, no. Because then you got to go to the doggy pop-ups. Because I remember me and my girl took Penny. Um, by the way, the dog's name is Penelope. You want to follow her on Instagram. It's Penny's world. Um, <laughs> we took Penny to a little dog pop-up. And then while we're at the dog pop-up, my girl starts tapping me like, listen, listen, look, look, look over there. What are you talking about? You see that Shih Tzu? And I was like, first of all, I don't know what a Shih Tzu is. <laughs> it's like the, little, the one right there next to the Maltese. And I was like, like the Falcon? What are you talking about? <laughs> She finally just points that, gives me colors and like about a height and a weight. I'm like, all right, cool. The black and white one. She's like, that dog has 10,000 Instagram followers. If we can get Penny to play with that dog, then maybe Penny can get her follower count up. I'm like, what is this? What world am I in? And I mean, you work in advertising, so like you should have a better idea of the purpose of that than I do. But like, I'm just like, why do dogs have Instagram accounts? I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. I understand all of it. It doesn't stop me from hating it. Like, knowledge doesn't stop you from still feeling the way about something. Mm -hmm. Like, I know so many things about advertising and marketing and, and how y'all are getting all these ads on your Instagram and Facebook. It doesn't mean that I stop clicking on them because I also like dad hats. Like, I just, I want stuff. Yes. It, it's, it's happening for a reason. It is aimed at me about everything that I love everything I don't like, and then a dollar points attached to it. Yes, I get it. Well, I definitely want to get into that more down the line in this conversation. But take me back. What was it like growing up in the Bronx? Uh, growing up in the Bronx, uh, for me, was very calm. There wasn't a lot of issues, mainly because uh, my mom was the founder of the local gang. So, like, I was chilling. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, shout out to Valley Mob. Um, it was founded in, like, the... 70s. My mom mm -hmm. likes to describe it more as just like a, you know, a youth gathering. I was like, <laughs> seemed like y'all punched people a lot, but okay, youth gathering by the park. And that means that growing up, all the old heads that knew my family, knew my uncles, knew my mom, they knew that first of all, just by the looks of me, this gang stuff wasn't going to work out for me, mm -hmm. which is very wise because I have very delicate skin and I love to moisturize. Uh, so they just knew like a little book smart kid. We're going to leave him alone. He's going to be fine. Just make sure no one else messes with him. So walking around the street was always chill for me. People would come up to me and be like, hey, how's it going? Um, you know, how's school? Need, need a little bit of money for books. I even remember one time I was walking with my uncle, Uncle Hank, and he sees one of his old friends. Old friend's like, oh, yeah, this is your nephew, right? He's doing great. How's, how's everything in life? Little man, you know, if you ever need anything, you ever got a problem, you know, don't worry. Just come straight to me. And my uncle's like, yeah, definitely come to him. He's a good guy. That man walks down the block. My uncle looks at me and says, never speak to that man again. <laughs> I'm like, what happened? It was like, he murdered two people. My God. Like, do not speak to that man. And I'm like, okay, all right, Uncle Hank. But like, that was my upbringing in my neighborhood. It was like, just leave him alone. The nickname for me was Poindexter Brown because mm -hmm. I was a little Poindexter. And these are very clever folks. I'm also brown. So put that two together. That was my nickname as a kid. So help me understand how your mom founded a gang or helped you found a gang. But you became this book smart kid who was like not about that life at all. I just, I mean, first of all, it just never really interests me. Mm -hmm. I just knew it wasn't going to be for me. But my mom was just one of, you know, three siblings that... They, they were around the neighborhood. And I, mm -hmm. I get what she's talking about when she says this is just how things kind of were back then. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't truly a gang in the sense that we think about it now. Um, 
when you really stop and look at the timeline, the way that the idea of having a local gang or like having a local community of, of young people, even though they may be a little bit rough around the edges, spending time together changes drastically when the drug epidemic hits, right? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden the money that's available, all of a sudden the way that these things are being pushed into our communities turns into such aggressive violence that they start calling us super predators. Right. But when we're just looking at the 70s, it's just maybe the kids that were smoking a little bit of weed, maybe the kids that were just a little bit rough and just didn't feel like going to class as much as they should have were just spending time together. And that's really all it was mm-hmm. for my mom and her friends and my uncles. Um, now what the Valley Mob became afterwards was just something a little bit different. Yeah. And I, I don't even really know. I feel like someone just saw the name and just recognized branding. It was like, let's keep running with it. But what they were doing was just probably just getting into fistfights a couple of times, um, making sure that my one uncle had a lot of support when he had his rap battles. Um, shout out Uncle Rick, formerly known as Slick Rick until Slick Rick came, battled him and took the name away. Uh, really? Really. Got the name snatched from him. My uncle even had, he had home field advantage. Slick Rick showed up, Slick Rick. And everyone's just like, Rick, you just Rick now. <laughs> Is that like a little known black history fact? Because I never knew that Slick Rick jacked the name from someone else. It wasn't that he jacked it. Like Slick Rick was calling himself Slick Rick. Mm-hmm. And then there was a Slick Rick in the Northeast Bronx calling himself Slick Rick. And they're like, oh, I guess all the Slick Ricks got a battle. See who's the slickest. <laughs> it was it was not my uncle. <laughs> it was not, not even close. That wasn't his game. So, you know, he just packed it in and started working at the Wiz. You know, got his life together. Nobody beats the Wiz. Nobody beats the Wiz. That is a throwback. Mm-hmm. You used to go there to get CDs when they dropped on Tuesday. Exactly. That's what I dropped that uh, Puff Daddy single from the Godzilla soundtrack. <laughs> fire. Still got that somewhere. Oh, I still have my CDs, man. They're all in the case. I flip through every once in a while. I don't even have a working CD player anywhere. Not even in my car. But um, yeah, I keep the CDs for nostalgia's sake. Yeah, they're going to be something one day. Thank you. They're going to be something. And I'm just a music head. So it's like, you know, people keep their albums. I have a few of those too, but I feel like we have to keep the CDs. We got to keep them. Yeah. Also think it's important to have some sort of physical representation of what you like. Mm -hmm. Because the way that the world moves now, you don't have full control over what you like and what you have. Right. Like Very if you're true. using a streaming service, even when you download it, it can be altered after the fact. There are Kanye albums that have been changed and remastered. Mm-hmm. And he didn't say a word to y'all about it. He just did it because he felt like it should be this way now. Right. But what if you really love the version from August 8th instead of the one from August 15th? Well, it's gone now. We actually remastered the first handful of episodes of the show. See, look at and you. And just swapped them out. So I know about that. Look at them. <laughs> Y'all got bamboozled. <laughs> Same content, just remastered. <laughs> bamboozled. Um, so when you were a kid growing up in the Bronx, what was the vision that you had for the adult version of your life? Oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cryogenist. Really? Yep. Yep. I don't know. There's something about freezing people seemed dope. I saw that they did it to Walt Disney and I was like, all right, well, for freezing people, like who else can we freeze? Can we freeze Mickey Mouse? I don't know. I want to find out. I just thought that was going to be my career path. So were you a math science kid? Nope. nope. You wanted to be a cryogenic. I just decided because I knew I couldn't be a Ninja Turtle. So I was like, this mm. seems more realistic. You know? I was always about Raphael with the with the Ninja Turtles. He was the best in my opinion. But I digress. So you wanted to be a cryogenist. Clearly, that was not the path that you ended up taking. So when did the vision change? I mean, it flipped over a couple of times. I think one of the the strongest things I had was trying to get somewhere within sports while knowing I couldn't play him well. I mm-hmm. always knew that. I, I accepted that about myself. Jump shot is still terrible. I work in a very, let's call it bro industry, and I get washed in beer pong because I just don't have a jump <laughs> shot. It just is what it is. Uh, but I always had a passion for the thought that goes into the sport, mm-hmm. the, the chess behind the game. So at first I thought I'd be some sort of coach or GM, 
I even applied to prove a point to my high school coach, like freshman year. I did a written essay to the coaches at Wichita State to come on as a graduate assistant. And I filled out all this paperwork and I sent it in to just some random address. And I got a note back saying like, hey, we're interested in like, if you just have like some more credentials. And mind you, like this does not mean I was going to get the job. Mm -hmm. This could have just been them saying, hey, young man, this seems fake, but we're going to entertain you. But I took that letter to my coach and was like, see, people are interested in my mind. So maybe we should start running this damn wishbone in 2003. <laughs> you ever think about that, coach? And uh, he kicked me off the team. But, but it's fine because I walked away with my dignity and also threw the football as nuts and I hit it. And I, I consider that a success. And that showed me that I had a bright mind and I could I could think through the problems that were in front of me. Um, then I took that same concept into maybe sports journalism. Mm -hmm. And I was riding hard for that up until maybe like sophomore year of college and looking for my internships. And they said, yeah, man, so we're going to bring you on unpaid. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I get that. That's cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to grind for this. Um, but usually when you hire somebody, what does that salary look like? And they said $19,000. Sounds about right. And I said, let's switch majors. So I just went to like general telecommunications, got a focus in um, video production and figured that at least that'd be like a tangible skill. I could like physically do mm -hmm. something, I can put some tape together. I can edit video. I can play with visuals, which is just something that was really speaking to me at the time because oddly enough, something about college, I don't know, maybe it's just like the general environment, but all of a sudden I was really into just sitting around a lot and uh, thinking through things mm -hmm. on the couch um, for hours at a time. And then passing out and then waking up and eating a lot. Uh, it's weird combination of stuff. Uh, but I just really started wanting to to work with that concept of like building something out through visuals and through sound. So I spent a lot of time focusing on that. Um, and I really wanted to go down that path. And I did for a bit coming out of school. Mm -hmm. I did some ad hoc work and like a lot of um, just freelance and a lot of videography for weddings. Uh, the only thing that really killed me was just, I think it was a bit of the timing because I graduated right in 2008. Oh, great recession. Yeah. And that recession hit me over the head. Boy, like I was, I was looking rough out here. So I, yeah, I just really put a, a, a misstep out there for me. But, you know, I kind of learned a couple lessons there and I, I kept pushing forward until I realized that I like advertising. I like marketing. I like thinking through things and people mm -hmm. in ways. And when I, once I got that in my head, I really started focusing in on this. Um, there still was a little bit of time there where <laughs> I worked in finance of all things, which made no sense. Because, again, I came out of school with a telecommunications degree. Um, the only thing was I had interned at AIG my freshman year. And they liked me, so they brought me back my sophomore year. And then they liked me still, so they brought me back in between holidays as a temp. And then junior year, I spent some time there. Spent the second half of junior year in my senior summer working in telecommunications, um, doing videos for the Department of Public Information at Penn State. Um, but then graduating, even Penn State was like, listen, we don't have any spots for you at here. Like, we are your school. We gave you this degree, but we can't hire you. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, all right, that's fine. Um, took an unpaid internship at a production house on City Island. I swear they were paying me a fried frog legs. Uh, and outside of that, I was just grinding until AIG came calling again, like, listen, you want a little bit of money? You can come in on as a temp. Mm -hmm. Came in as a temp for 90 days. In my 90-day contract, I outperformed the actual financial analyst. So they fired the financial analyst and paid me two-thirds of his salary. 
I know this because I was working in expenses and I could see myself <laughs> as a line item on the books. And I was like, got you. Okay, got it. And when I say two thirds of what he was making, my two thirds includes the fee they gave to the temp agency. So I was just out here looking bad. So <laughs> if people don't know anything about like temp agencies and the markup for major corporations, markup is serious. I mean, it's like often 100 percent or, you know, or at least at least 60, like 50 to 60 percent. So if they were paying the temp agency two thirds where you were actually bringing home probably was abysmal yeah. in comparison. But I was loving it. I felt great. Because <laughs> you were working, home, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to my not paid internship right. at a production house. Yeah, I was loving it. I was excited for it. But I find it interesting that you was you were looking at sports journalism and then when you saw the pay, what that looked like, market pay, you were like, yeah, not for me. But then you chose a lane that it can be very hard to break into and be successful um, and financially stable in it as well. Like, what was your thought process there? Because I knew there, there was two things. There's two mm -hmm. factors. So it was understanding, all right, $19,000 is going to be what I'm making mm -hmm. as entry level in journalism. Whereas if I go into videography, a lot of that's going to be self-defined. Yeah. So I should be all right if I just work hard enough, like just self-belief. Mm -hmm. But it's also a simple fact that in journalism, I saw it dying in so many mm -hmm. ways. What I wanted to do, because in certain ways, I'm a bit of an old soul. And I was like, I thought I was going to be the next like Ralph Wiley. I thought I was going to like really change the game and follow in the steps of these real classical sports writers, even like a Tony Kornheiser who went from writing strictly sports to jumping into the style section for the Washington Post. Like I thought those those heroes of mine were going to show me how to do it. And that was the path. But that path was falling apart mm -hmm. as I was graduating. So I was just like, this isn't going to work. Like what I want it to be, even if I could do it for free, isn't really going to exist the way I want it to. Mm -hmm. So I just moved away from it and tried to find another path that could still scratch a bit of that itch. Yeah. So what what were you feeling coming out of school? And I, I mean, I've talked about it on this show. So I was in law school at the time um, when the, the crash of 08 happened. And we were watching like, you know, we were told you're in a top 20 law school. You do halfway well in school. The offers are going to be rolling in. Like, it's not that difficult. Just do the work, you know, get a good summer associateship. You'll have your six figure offer with your signing bonus pass the bar and you get money. Um, and then the crash happened and it was like unprecedented, you know, for the generation. So law firms, you know, it, it was like a, a trickle down effect, right? A ripple effect. So law corporations were questioning their bills before they used to just write the check for whatever millions of dollars in legal fees. And then they're like, oh, why do you have a partner reading something and then an associate and then a paralegal and charging you for that? So fees were getting slashed. And then law firms, they literally only make money by bill billing hours. There's no other creative way to do that. So they're like, oh, you know, revenue is down. What are we going to do here? And we have this whole class of law students that we extended offers to. So for a period of months, our 3L year, 2008 going into 2009, People were just sitting on like pins and needles, getting waiting to get a letter to see A, if they were going to be deferred or B, if their offer was going to be yanked altogether. Like, yeah, we, we, we know we extended you an offer, you know, for 160 grand, but we're not going to be able to honor that. And yeah, and that was literally what was happening. Or people saying, you know, firm saying we're going to pay you a third of what we offered you. Go do nonprofit work or community work for government work for a year and then come back. Um, so I, I watched that play out at the law school level. but. But most people, and, and unfortunately, I was someone who held on to my offer, ended up not taking it like a G in the middle of a recession, but I held on to my offer. Um, but I think many of us had worked before. So we were like, oh, we'll figure it out. Like, not a big deal. But I couldn't imagine 
coming out of college. So you're just starting your career in the middle of a time where not only was like unemployment really, really high, but there were just no jobs to be had, period. It, even if you were the cream of the crop, it was really hard to get, get hired. So did you feel like this is temporary? I just need to ride the wave? Or were you really shook by it? Well, this is the thing um, that really hurts somebody that can be as dorky and nerdy as me mm-hmm. is I looked at the numbers for the 70s recession. I looked at what happened to graduates around um, was that Black Monday in in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is the Great Depression, how that affected generations. And I knew exactly what was going to happen to me. Yeah. And that there are going to be dollars that I'll just never recoup mm-hmm. unless I'm super, super aggressive about my career path, which, I mean, I attempt to be in certain ways, but in other ways, I just don't have the blood for it, if I'm going to be honest, right? So I, I just knew that this was an L that was going to ride out until I was in the grave. Yeah. There's just... You just lose dollars, right? Like the generation that's coming out right now, well, God bless them because they may just get hit with their own recession in mm. a year or two. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's coming. You know, inverted yield curves, look that up. But just looking at how not making funds or having a market that's depressed when you first start, you know, that that feeds into every promotion you get yep. from there on out. Um, and I just, I kind of took it. I was like, I understand this is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fine. Um, I try to get creative in the jobs that I looked for. One of the things that I remember applying to and, and getting, you know, a little a little ways into the interview process was for a, a videography job with the government. Um, the thing was, it was really dope. It was an opportunity to work with some really interesting people. The problem was, and also the pay was exorbitant compared to any other videography mm-hmm. gig. They were talking about $70,000 entry level. Wow. I was all for it and I was ready. My mom had some reservations. Those reservations being, you're going to Iraq. Uh, oh. <laughs> So I remember being like, mom, I got my reel. I'm ready to go. 70K. Don't worry. I'm going to be in the green zone. It's going to be chill. And she's like, boy, you were raised in a military family. You know that that green zone is red hot. It just depends on the day. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I was ready to do it. And it was just, I mean, you're just hungry. You're hungry for any opportunity that you can get. You just want something. Right. You want something to prove yourself. And I figured if I could walk into a war zone, also get 70K and then have a reel from that, that's going to move me. Mm -hmm. That's going to get my name on the top of some list. Um, And if nothing else, I would just be a civil servant technically and keep getting them checks. Right. So how did you get from considering taking a videography job in Iraq to going into advertising? Uh, I stumbled around a bit, if I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. Finally got fed up with finance and started looking into things that were defined as media. Because when you get a telecommunications degree, especially at Penn State, it is 100% what you try to do with it because it's just a wide, it pretty much is giving you a bucket and be like, fill this bucket with anything communications related. We don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you happen to be a football player, don't fill it with anything. Keep getting them tackles. Like at Penn State, that's all they really care about. Right. So that's why I had a lot of, lot of pro athletes in my classes. But I knew that there were a bunch of things in that bucket that I wanted to fill it with. And I, I dabble with with most of them. So I dabbled with the journalism. I dabbled with the videography. And the thing that was missing was the advertising piece. I took a lot of courses in that. And I was like, all right, well, let me let me try this out. Let me try out paid media. 
And what paid media is, is it's the purchasing and strategy behind the ads that we all see. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, let me let me jump into this. And once I got into it, I kind of felt my, my way around a little bit. I felt like I'm getting close, but not close enough. I'm doing the buying portion, but I want to do more of the strategy and planning portion. And I just slowly worked my way over, you know. I tried to, once I realized how much I liked it, try to put some people on, you know, um, some of those people fell asleep in in their cubicle, but you know, you you can't save everybody. (laughs) Can't save everybody, Mac. (laughs) For those who don't know, Mac had a brief career in advertising. And I don't know if we've called you Mac on the show. Sam did start it, but DeMarcus Adisa, producer extraordinaire, was in advertising at a very stressful time in his life. And we'll leave it at that. But on the other end of that stress, (laughs) I had secretly automated it. 80% 80% of his job. So he should have been chilling. Ooh, the shade. <laughs> the shade that's being thrown right now. I mean, truly the shame of me to both shame him for this as if I wasn't part of the stress he was going through <laughs> in his life. Considering the demographic who listens to this show, I'm hoping that most people can just read between the lines on, on what was going down during that era in DeMarcus's life. <laughs> it's called a better making of men. He's fine. <laughs> But yeah, just uh, finding that space, just to you know, bring it back uh, where we were, finding that space and, and realizing this is what I really liked. And and to be more specific, what I liked was understanding people. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that like I'm the best with people all the time. It was just understanding or like finding ways to connect with people. Mm-hmm. That's been something that my parent, single, my one parent, really instilled in me, like understanding folks, trying to find a way to connect with different folks. Um and I, I realized I've been doing it my whole life, right? I've been yeah. trying to find ways to understand why this kid from the North Bronx acts different than this other kid from the North Bronx. Uh, what are the through lines? Where are we connected? Where are we different? Uh, and once I figured out how much I just like doing that, mm-hmm. it, it, that was it. That was it. And it and it pays dividends and it keeps paying dividends for me. So even when I'm just walking around my office on an off day and I'm able to connect with one of these younger associates and talk to them about the career path, regardless if we're from the same background or not, that's fulfilling for me. Mm-hmm. You know, just understanding who they are and how they work and then applying that to like our clients, right? Our client comes in and no matter what they say about analytics and data and all these things, you have to understand the person. And if the person comes to you and you know that he just wants to talk gossip before the meeting and if you get him in a good mood, then he's ready to buy ready to buy like a toy or a car is the same way he's ready to buy what we're selling in terms of strategy for these millions of dollars that he's in charge of on behalf of his marketing team inside of a larger corporation. So just finding those connections, learning just like a little bit about Chelsea football, learning just a little bit about rugby, learning just a little bit about what it's, what it's like growing up in Essex, you know, right outside of London. Like these small things mean something to someone mm-hmm. to show you care, to show you connect, to show you're listening. It's just helpful. And I just kept feeding off of it. So... One of the things that I, I know from talking to listeners on this show that they appreciate um, is is knowing how someone really like broke through the door, especially having a, a story like yours where you had to pivot a couple of times. You may have had the gap because of the recession. You know, you're doing temp work, doing these other things. And now looking at how you can use your degree from a different angle. How did you land that first job in advertising? Uh Poorly, I think, would be the, the truth of the matter. I didn't even understand that the job I took was the lowest of the low rungs mm-hmm. in this industry, uh, which is tough because I'm, I'm coming in. I think I took my associate job, my first one at age 25, going on 26. And everybody else, the rest of my cohorts were 21 going on 22. Mm-hmm. So that in and of itself is a bit of a, you know, a hurdle. But I just 
took as much as I could. Well, first I tried to learn as much as I could about how this industry worked and what it was like to be an associate and what they were looking for. And then I took an RSS feed of all the different jobs. I fed it into, and let me step back real quick. I did learn a good deal from finance. And a lot of that was um, using Excel and not just using Excel, becoming a power user. That power user skill set was just a step away from programming mm-hmm. in, in some ways. So I was able to understand a bit about how to take an RSS feed full of job postings, um, pull down that posting, and then automate a reply with my resume. Wow. So once I figured that little step out with the, with some help from a friend or two, you know, including Scott Davis, including a friend that was still working in the finance space, I, next thing I know, I had sent out 150 resumes in like a week mm-hmm. and this one place called me back and they hired me almost on the spot because I knew so much about Excel and they considered themselves Excel heavy, which they weren't. They just didn't know how to use it. And that was my foot in the door, just translating what I just learned in finance, which I was making twice as much as I was about to make it as media job, but just telling them that that was worth their time. And from there, I just started buying local radio in, uh, what was my first market? Uh, it was like right outside of oh, uh, Kennesaw. I think I bought mm-hmm. some radio out there and I was started buying, I started assisting on radio buys in the New York market, on Minneapolis, um, a lot of stuff in Wisconsin. So if you ever heard an ad while visiting Wisconsin. I don't know if this le- listenership spent much time in Wisconsin. <laughs> Probably not. But you know, if y'all ever happen to be passing through trying to get some cheese curds and you heard an uh, ad about a toilet that could flush in reverse, you're welcome. That was me. <laughs> you know, I was, I was slinging them toilets um, through the airways. But yeah, that's, that's just how I got, got my way in. And then I still had to keep finessing it a bit because mm-hmm. the agency I worked at was is what's called a barter agency. And that's just like, you know, you're scraping barnacles off the side of the boat. The way their structure works is they're literally, uh, I don't know, let's say you're Staples, right? And y'all overbought pens and you could maybe sell it to Marshalls or someone else that specializes in overstock or company that I was working at will show up, buy those pens, 100 cents on a dollar, but then say for the right for me to buy these pens from you and give you full cash for them, I want the right to place an equivalent, if not more, amount of media on your behalf mm. and then make fees off of the, that media, right? And then they'll turn to the station that they're buying the inventory from, that that commercial space, and they'll say, hey, I heard y'all needed to get your uh, driveway paved. I heard y'all needed chairs. Well, from this other company, we had bought some <laughs> pavement, some gravel and some chairs. I'm going to give you this. But for these chairs and gravel, I want this amount of airtime, like commercial airtime. So they're working the margins on both ends of this deal. You bring it together, millions of dollars. But what happens is, let's say you're at that station, right? And yeah, you got your your driveway paved, you got your chairs, um, but then a bigger agency with real money comes in and Mm -hmm. says, hey, here's a million dollars. Not a million dollars in chairs, not a million dollars in gum, a million dollars. What they're probably going to do is they're going to preempt all of my stuff that I bought with my chairs and they're going to take that money and then tell me sorry later. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant scramble and you're constantly fighting to get your stuff actually aired and you're yelling at people and you're arguing and they don't really care. But then they kind of got to care because you got something in legal writing saying you're going to get all of this inventory. And it's just a grind in a lot of ways. It sounds like the chop shop of advertising. Like it's, <laughs> That is the best way I've, I've, I've never heard even, anyone put it. I've never even heard of yes. it. Yes. 
you are chop shopping advertising and media spend. It, it is wild. And also something that often happens in these places is they, they're not going to be housed in New York City because mm-hmm. the way they're trying to chop costs on the media they're buying, they're trying to chop costs on everything, mm-hmm. on employees, on, you know, the rented space for those employees. Like they're, they're not really trying to spend money at all. It's just part of their their whole thing. So you'll be out in like Pearl River, New York or like somewhere deep in Westchester. So for me, I just do this wild reverse commute. So that's right. I was a New York City person. I was mm-hmm. living in the Bronx, reverse commuting out to Rockland County. Oh, gosh. Which is wild and paying his $13 toll to come home every mm-hmm. day. That hurt, you know, making $30,000. And, you know, I was, just, I was just grinding as best I could, you know, just trying to turn pins into promotional spots. Pins into promotional spots. Yeah. Um, so for, for those who are just not familiar with the space at all, let's get real remedial for a second. Media buys, what is that in layman's terms? Media buys. So someone places a large amount of spend with a radio station, mm-hmm. TV, network, um, your favorite website, you know, any sort of place that advertises, right? Like we we place a buy to place a certain amount of commercials or advertising. It's really as simple as that. It's just you're paying for the right to to play whatever creative you have to talk about the messaging that you want the world to see. So all the things that we hear over and over and over and over again. Right. That's basically what's being bought. It me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's me. Um, or like one of my cohorts. This mm-hmm. is what we do. Uh, and it, there's so many different ways to do it. There's so many ways to to buy your attention. Sure. Right. And the key part of it, the planning and the strategy of it is understanding who you are. Or no, first understanding who you want to talk to as yeah. an advertiser, right? Figuring out where you are. D, maybe you're someone that just, you know, we need to get you hair care products because mm-hmm. we know that that's something you're going to buy in bulk or like you're going to buy regularly if we get you locked in. So where are you? What do you listen to? Where can we connect with you? Well, maybe it's Instagram before it's television. Well, then we're going to buy $1.5 million in Instagram ads to talk to you and everyone that profiles based off of the information y'all are constantly giving up to us um, to, to be right in that space and be relevant, right? It can either be contextual, mm-hmm. as in we're next to an article from Carol's daughter telling you about the importance of hair care, or it's more so audience-based in that all the, these different data points that you've given us over a 90-day span, we put it all together, strip it of your personal information, mm-hmm. allegedly, and then, no, no, legally we do that. We, le- we legally take out your PII. We have to do that legally. Personally identifiable information, yes, folks, PII. Right. I have to take that information out and I have to strip it because if I don't, you could sue me. God forbid y'all catch on. <laughs> <laughs> so like we, we strip out that information and then we hit everyone. We hit you and everyone that profiles as like you, mm-hmm. like whatever your habits are, the smallest thing that you think that may need may not even register as something that flags you as someone looking for a certain type of hair product, it does. Yeah. Right. Not just the things you like, but the things you don't like, the things that you scroll past quicker than the things that you you let linger on your screen. Mm-hmm. All these things are data points that we use to find you and sell you stuff. And you know what I find incredibly interesting about all of this? I talked about on the show recently how I had my eggs frozen. So I spent a couple of days like on the fertility message boards, just kind of getting some information about the procedure and um, the aftermath and like what to expect. Right. And then, of course, I researched the doctors in New York City, like who were centers of excellence or what have you. Didn't do a ton. But what I realized is after I got through, not during, but after I got through the procedure, I was getting 
targeted ads as it relates to not only pregnancy, but being a, a new mother. But what was cracking me up about it, and I didn't think about all the things that you're saying here, how they're looking at a bunch of different data points, not just the two fertility sites I looked at and something else. Um, it was all like high end stuff, right? Like things like Bluetooth enabled, you know, breast pumps and these $500 strollers and, you know, meal kits that come on a, a subscription of raw, organic, cold pressed this like baby food. So I'm dying laughing because I'm like, First of all, I find all this stuff very interesting. If I choose to be a mom, I'm the person that would research this, right? I never connected the dots. They're probably looking at other data points that pinpoint where I am in terms of tax bracket, the fact that I am a quote unquote upwardly mobile attorney, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I'm getting all these expensive ads for things that babies don't even really need. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> it's, it's not just the thing that you're doing in the moment. It's the mm-hmm. thing you've been doing for the last 90 days. Yeah. Right. And each action suggests something else about you, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, it's really, I use it in my personal life sometimes for my own amusement, but it's its hilarious how if you just know enough about enough subjects, and I mean talking, I'm not talking being like a mile deep on something. Mm-hmm. If you're just like three or four inches deep on multiple subjects, if you stitch another, enough of them together, you can figure out so much about, you know, where a person's from, um, where they're going in their life, what's their career path, what matters to them, mm-hmm. like, are they into like their signs, like all these little things just based off of a few data points that you give me. And I, I do it all the time with folks. I've been with Mac and we've, we've you know, had conversations with different people and I'll just barely be paying attention, but they'll tell me one thing about themselves mm-hmm. and I'll just say something very specific to that topic. Right. And it, it excites people because it makes it feel like I really know them when in fact, I just know a lot of random things and this feels like a human connection. Mm-hmm. And that's all my job is doing is finding these small things about you and then saying something that feels so real to you. But it really isn't. Right. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have looked up those exotic hotels in Maldives multiple times. Now they think I want a Bluetooth enabled $600 breast pump. That's exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. And then as each little data point dies away, like let's say like the fertility stuff happened more recently than searching for those bungalows that you're mm-hmm. looking at. Well, that'll still be there like 60 days from now. And all of a sudden, maybe you're profiling more so as a woman just searching for you know, just love or, or partnership mm-hmm. or, or just having someone in your life, you know, just just someone that cares and loves you when you when you show up in the morning. Because there's no more profiling of your spin, right? Because that data is gone now. Right. Usually you only have the cookies for like 90 days, so that information for 90 days. So sure, fine. Now it's less breast pumps and more adopt, don't shop, here's a puppy. Mm-hmm. Right. Because because we're still seeing that you want something in your life to care for and care about you. But maybe it's just a little bit lower of a level and lower of a commitment because that's what the data shows us now. That's crazy. I mean, I, I knew all this stuff, of course, but I think a lot of people who are not familiar with the industry assume that it's like, oh, I just did a Google search on running shoes. And that's why I'm getting all these ads from, you know, Saucony or, or Nike. I don't think people are connecting the dots that all of their behaviors and as many data points as can be gathered about them, um, as many as can be gathered are being used to the benefit of advertising agencies and companies. And, and it extends not just to us advertising. Mm-hmm. It's almost not to, this is not a high horse. This is like a mule at best. But in advertising, we're obviously trying to sell you something. Right. And you could connect the fact that, okay, these people are trying to sell me some, something or willing to do a lot to get me in the door. Um, but what you may not consider is the people that allowed us in. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So you can talk about the Googles, the Facebooks, whoever it may be. And realizing it in all of those scenarios, they're giving you something for free. At least that's how it seems on paper. But what they're actually collecting and, and profiting off of is you. Yep. You're the product. And all these data points are the product. And to make sure that you're constantly coming back and you feel fulfilled and you keep ingesting their content, the same way we're taking these data points and selling you something, they're taking these data points and they're giving you information. Mm-hmm but specific to what you would like. And to me, that's where it's really dangerous. One yeah. thing for me to sell you some staples or like a printer or even a $30,000 breast pump, which is ludicrous, but sure, <laughs> there's a market. But it's something to really be said for people saying, hey, so you're left-leaning, um, you're African-American, here's all this information that's really going to get you excited. Yeah. It's going to get you upset in a way that keeps you coming back. And even... If the information isn't exactly how it happened or just slightly skewed, what's more important is that you keep clicking and stay engaged. Mm -hmm. I'm not really concerned with how accurate it is. Right. And then he creates these different little covens, little clicks. And while we say the World Wide Web and it's, it's such a big net, it is. It's a huge net, but there's different pockets in different neighborhoods all over. Right. And if you go deeper and deeper into your neighborhood, you never hear about the other neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That's another reason why I like what I do, because at least I get the opportunity to see different neighborhoods, right? I spent three and a half years working on a brand that was focused on household incomes, making 100K plus with 50K cash assets Mm -hmm. to invest. That ain't me. Right. You know, I mean, it will be soon enough, you know, now you're trying to be a Jack and Jill Black. But (laughs) for the time being, it simply is not me. So understanding where they are and how they speak allowed me to then mirror some of their own habits when I'm online, Mm -hmm. which completely changed the information I was getting. Wow. Right. The conversations that were being had that are outside of our own community. Right. And when I say community, there's you may think African-Americans. No, the way that conversations happen, even in the black community, can be so much different on the let's call it the Benny the Butcher side, Mac versus the Catronata side. Mm hmm. Like we're not we're not having the same. The Afro punk conversation is much different from the Rolling Loud conversation. Right. They're not they're not the same, but people from the outside would assume it is because they're in their own silos and they just see us as one bland thing. But really these these pockets are getting so deep, like wells, and you can't see around and you can barely see up to mm-hmm. see any light, right? And the way the light comes in is different in each and every hole, but you swear that you're getting all the information and you're doing your research, but it doesn't really matter unless you're purposely going out of your way to find different ways to look into information, to silo yourself and how you're tracked. You're getting something very specific to who you are and what you tell the internet and these companies you are. I think there are a lot of lessons in, in of what you just said, both from a like personal professional development standpoint also from the standpoint of access to information, which we're always pushing for on this show. But also we have a lot of listeners who are on the path to entrepreneurship, trying to start a brand or are building a brand. And I want to dissect that on a few levels. First, from the professional development standpoint, um, the fact that we spend a lot of time, I think, as individuals, like hating our jobs and being like, I hate this. This is not what I want to do. It's not what I'm passionate about. Um, And and I, I suspect that you were not a huge fan of working in finance. Nah. Right. So like almost every person who's come on this show, but there are skills from that 
that you took into the next thing that you really, you know, you really had an interest in. Um, so that's one lesson that I'm, I'm taking for like seeing the benefit wherever you are and just trying to glean whatever you can to build the foundation for what you really want to do. Um, also, another lesson is sometimes to do what you want to do means that you're going to have to take a pay cut and go in at the bottom rung. And and because many of us as 26ers are ambitious, we're really talented um, and we're used to getting the prime opportunities. We move into a new space. We automatically think that that's what's going to happen. And that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes you just got to start on the ground floor and work your way up, even though you have the goods and you may be smarter than the people in the room. But it's just about, you know, getting your your foot in the door. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. And it's is a game that you you have to play one way or another. You just sometimes you may not even know it, but mm-hmm. you, you have to be able to maneuver in all these different spaces and understand all these different people, because if you don't, there's always going to be a booby trap waiting. Right. It's just just the way of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, like I know for for many of us who grew up in really hardworking families, but didn't necessarily have access to all the information of the ways of the world on the other side of the tracks. I have these conversations with first generation like college folks or, you know, the first generation in their family to think about investment or how to create wealth. And the conversation that's always happening um, is I just didn't have the information. The narrative is always like, how do my colleagues know this? How do the people, how do my white counterparts know? And I don't. And I still don't. I'm 35 and I'm still trying to to figure it out. I, I need this. I need that. And I just don't know. And I never looked at it from um, the perspective of your habits also affect the information that's being presented to you on the Internet. Mm-hmm. I never looked at it that way. It, it does. It changes the conversation they assume you want to have. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it, it's so much harder to like go find the next conversation. Or really what it is, is you can't, as much as you feel like you should be able to rely on whatever network you already have to mm-hmm. find information, it's important to kind of step out of your network, walk five paces in either direction and yeah. see what else is there. Mm-hmm. And almost like reset and see see what's happening, right? Because if you don't, man, you're going you're gonna to get a little bit lost. Like one of the things that always hits me, um, like Black folks, we talk about, you know, this less melanin and like black girl magic and all this. And I, I support the idea of supporting ourselves. Mm-hmm. That is great. Um, but there's also like other heavily melanated people with incredible stories. Yeah. And when you get in a situation where you only talk about your melanin and your people, and then we get into like the whole like oppression Olympics. I think me and Mac talked about that a few times. Folks get into the, the oppression Olympics are like, oh man, 400 years of slavery. Like these things that, that were done to us. Ain't nothing, ain't nothing in the world been as bad as what's going on with us. I'm like, well, you know, you know, China just slaughtered like a bunch of Muslims. Like it just, it just happens, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there are other conversations happening, but when you're completely siloed from it, you don't get to appreciate how, you know, that same playbook is being run somewhere else. And you thought it was so specific to you. And then you start attaching the wrong things to it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not necessarily that Black people are getting punished. Other people get punished when they're the other in the minor, uh, majority space. It's just how it works, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of extrapolate that out on a lot of other situations and see your through line. Like, you can see the through line between being African-American and then being um, a Desi woman whose grandmother was marked with, you know, a quarter moon or crescent moon because she had to get dragged from one side of India to the other of what is now Pakistan. Like these are these are real stories for folks. Mm-hmm. And, and understanding how it works for so many others can really help you understand what's really happening to you. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you know, you talked a lot about stepping five, you know, five paces this way or that way. But for someone who is like listening to this and is going to say, how do I do that? Like, what's the first step I take to start changing the information and the access that I have? I mean, that's the hardest part, though. Mm-hmm. That That's what's really tough. Like, where do you, because even then it's all relative, right? Yeah. It's hard to tell somebody who's five paces from me to walk three paces to the other way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe like you're 10 paces away from me. So if you walk three paces to the other side, you may fall into like some real extreme stuff. Like, I don't know. Um, but the easiest way to do it, if anything, is just find different news sources. Mm-hmm. Um if we're talking to an audience that's mainly based in the U.S., you know, you might want to try Al Jazeera. Yeah. You may want to try BBC because people in other places are talking about the U.S. differently. And the simple fact that you start searching for these other sources will change how you start receiving information. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may think to yourself, like, well, if I click on this on my laptop, how is it going to affect what's going on on my computer? Well, you know what? I'm going to give you some real specifics on this. One, your mic's always on. I want to terrify y'all with that. Your mic is always on. Two, whatever apps you download on your phone, we get to read that. Even if we don't read what you do within each app, that matters, right? So even if you just downloaded a different news source, even if you just, it sounds crazy to some of y'all, if you just download Fox News on your phone, it will change the news you receive. Mm. It just will. And it may sound crazy to download that application and put money in in that family's hands, but it may change the way you get to hear a conversation because there's half of a conversation happening completely without you and it doesn't have any of your valid points in it. They've already taken all your valid points and thrown them away or ignored them, right? And also the next step of that would be finding things that are separate from your world, not just in terms of who you are as a person, um, but like what you're thinking about. So if you're someone that's super into sports, maybe just spend a little bit of time on Refinery29 Unbothered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still a black story that they're trying to tell over there, but it may not be yours. It may not be the, the story that you're having. Um, just try to try to find your mirror and then investigate your mirror. And then once you do, again, it's going to change the information you receive. Mm-hmm. It's definitely going to make my job harder when I try to sell you stuff, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. I'm still going to find you. I'm pretty good at this. You sound like a creep stalker right now, but... Um... Oh, no, no. I'm professionally <laughs> a creep stalker, y'all. Like, I don't want to lie to y'all. Professionally, I am stalking your lives, listening on your mic, reading your phone for all the apps you download, tracking all of your information as you work through what you thought was an incognito browser. I'm here. I'm always here. You can't leave me because mm-hmm. y'all are too addicted to all these things you thought were free. Yep. If we really want to go into it, like the Matrix, when like, oh, like using humans, humans as batteries, right? I mean, I'm I'm using humans as profit all the time, every day. That's why they pay me. And I always like crack up when like that, um, that age app was going on. Like, you know, people were showing yeah. themselves at 70 or something. And yeah, I, I got to. Yeah. So everybody's like, oh, you know, they got your data. And people thought that that was the first time their data might have been oh. gotten by anybody. <laughs> And I'm like, no, they, they know who you are already. It's okay. Yeah. Like no one, y'all are not <laughs> reading the conditions, the mm-hmm. terms and conditions at all. Like just be honest with yourselves. Like if y'all are really about this, you would understand what I am saying right now when I would say like, how are you doing with the latest Tor browser update? Most of y'all don't know what I'm talking right. about. Most of y'all don't use Tor because y'all don't understand the importance of having a browser that does not track you at all. Mm-hmm. Right. People tell you about the dark web, but you don't know how to start to get into it. That would be step one. Right. Yeah, because it's not traced. Mm-hmm. So the other piece that I want to want to bring up too, as I alluded to the entrepreneurship piece, though, mm-hmm. because I, I think sometimes 
especially in our communities, because we don't have the resources often when we start something is we're trying to build a brand and the extent of our strategy around advertising and marketing is I'm just going to put it on the internet. I'm going to blast it. I'm going to post on IG. I'm going to post on Facebook and pray it works without a real consideration for um, who are you really speaking to? Like, who's your demographic? What are the psychographics there, the behavioral patterns, et cetera? And of course, most people starting out can't afford to pay some advertising agency, but there are things that you should be looking at to help you figure out who you're targeting and how to target them better. So for the the young startup founder or someone who's just starting small in entrepreneurship, where what are considerations or things that they can be doing to make sure that they are investing their resources in the right place and reaching the consumer that they really need to reach? I mean, in the broadest sense, probably mm-hmm. one of the cheaper ways to do this is paid search. So understand what your brand is, what are the key ways to describe it, mm-hmm. literally the keywords, and then you know, reach out to Google AdWords and see if you can purchase some of those words and, you know, what that will look like if you were just purchasing them consistently and help you get to the top of any search page. Um, probably do a course on SEO if you have a website, right? Because um, it's one thing to pay to be on top of any search results. That's kind of like that ad that you see on top yeah. of Google or Bing. I mean, some people do use Bing, but to optimize your web page for that Google search itself so that it feels organic. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. Right? So just do a bit of research on that. And then additional paid media channel to look into is, is social. Social feels right. Social, you can build things organically, um, but understand the trends that are happening and kind of like attach yourself whenever possible. So I don't know if you got something that kind of looks like a Popeye's chicken sandwich right now. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, write your logo on top of it. Just say it. it. It'll work. Um, but understanding what those trends are and kind of like reading the tea leaves and especially trends that are outside of, again, outside of your community, mm-hmm. um, because you may not know how interested someone else may be in your product until you take it a little bit outside. Don't waste all your time on it, of course. If you understand who your target is, if there's a specific community that you want to reach, if there's something you intrinsically understand about your product, go for it. Lean in. Um, but always pull out, pull out a or put out, excuse me, a couple feelers, right? There's a concept that um, Google has that we use in advertising when handling a client spend a lot of times. It's a 70-20-10 principle. Mm -hmm. And the 70% is what you're confident in. It's what's tried and true and what's worked before. If you're starting off early, you're still figuring that out. But once you feel comfortable in how you figured out how to reach your consumer, how to reach out to the audience that you want to speak to, then maybe put 20% of your spend into something that's kind of like what you're already doing, but a slight tweak. Those other audiences that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. but still reach out to them in a maybe a similar way, but just a little bit different or do something slightly different with the audience you already have and see how that works because you want to constantly be learning and growing. And then that 10% of your budget, that's where you just kind of throw something at the wall, right? Do something completely different with completely new people. It just feels so, so foreign to what you're doing already. Because again, you want to have as many learning opportunities as possible because you want to keep growing your audience, learning from your audience, collecting these data points that I'm talking about. Even if you don't have access to the research that I have, you have access to the people that you're seeing coming in and purchasing or at least engaging. Right. Right. So I I know too, I think some of the psychology that needs to change is because many folks are working with limited resources. They're afraid to try something or if they try it and it doesn't work, mm-hmm. they don't want to spend any more money. It's like, well, I worked and I've had conversations with entrepreneurs um, to do business with them or give them ideas. And they're like, well, I spent, I dumped $10,000 into this marketing campaign and it did nothing for me. And now I'm just not going to do anything because it, it doesn't work. So I think part of it too is changing the psychology around risk. Mm-hmm. 
and saying, I'm, I am gathering data points. Even if it doesn't work, there's information that was gathered there that can help push my, my business forward. And I think that's just a mentality that has to change. I agree with you a lot on that because I would say if you spent $10,000 on a, on a concept, on a marketing campaign, and now you will not spend any more money in marketing, you didn't have $10,000 to spend. Mm-hmm. That's not what you should have been doing. That's not how, as a community, how we should be looking at dollars and figures. And- yeah budgets. If you feel like you spend 10000 and that's going to be it, what you should be doing is spending five, spending four, maybe spending three, because mm-hmm. you should be able to test and learn. There's there's no, and maybe that's part of what I'm struggling with, even trying to answer the question of like, what are the right steps for an entrepreneur? The right step for an entrepreneur is to not put all your eggs in one basket, to not have one single point of failure, because you're learning your idea the same way your consumer is going to be learning about your idea, right? Um, there's different stages to marketing and to selling something. One of the first stages is awareness, right? And if no one knows who you are, then how are they supposed to buy it? Mm-hmm. Um But then boom, let's say everyone knows now. Everyone's fully aware of who you are. Well, then I still need you to consider it. That's different than just knowing who I am. I knew what Walmart was. I knew what Chick-fil-A was for a long time in New York City, but neither one was around when I was growing up, right? But their marketing was so strong that when I grew older and I saw Walmart, I was intrigued because I saw a smiling yellow face knocking the prices off of stuff. I just knew. I knew that these cows over here that couldn't spell were trying to get me to eat more chicken. Mm-hmm. Right? The, aware- the awareness was there and there was so much advertising that turned into consideration. On a smaller scale, you have to figure out your audience and then make them aware and then make them consider and then convert them. Work them down that funnel. You're going to lose people along the way. It's naturally what's going to happen because there's a much larger commitment to buy something versus just knowing you're around. Right. Right. And what is beautiful now, though, about social media is if you make people aware in a way that they feel invested, they'll do more of the awareness work for you. Mm. Right. If they if you give them content, which is what the Facebooks and what the Twitters and all the social networks want anyway. Right. Because they want you to generate content that they can then use to learn more about these people so they can then sell them. So you're doing half the job for them they'll happily take it. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chick-fil-A and Popeyes have been everywhere mm-hmm. on, on social media at this point. And I saw something the other day that that basically said that it was the equivalent of, you know, all the chatter online was the equivalent of like $40 million in advertising spend. I have no idea if that's correct. Would you would you say that's accurate? It's, it's not that far off, mm-hmm. especially when you consider like a single primetime spot in the New York City market is like $10,000. So if you just have what each and every news cycle talk mm-hmm. about that for, let's you know, say the segment is 90 seconds even, that's not very long at all. In a 30 second spot is worth $10,000. Well, 90 seconds times that by three, four big networks. You, you keep building out that number, it can get big real fast. And then when you build in the search, well, yeah. And then you build in the social. Oh, my God. Like it just starts growing. Right. It's such a fast clip and everyone just keeps sending out more and more and more. You know, an ad may have cost me an Instagram ad, a single one, maybe, maybe a single post is 50 cents for certain audiences because they're so big. Yeah. But if everyone keeps sharing it over and over and over again, and if I check the hashtag and ask 10 million posts, 
yeah, I said 50 cents, but like we're in we're in the hundreds of thousands right. going into the millions real quick. And the crazy part is just all of these like funny memes, this whole Popeyes versus Chick-fil-A, right? And it's hilarious. I mean, I've gotten the screenshots. People are sending them to me and without, and it's all funny. I mean, I find it entertaining, but without a realization that like we are actually advertising and, and that's why the lines are wrapped around the building. And the crazy part is this Popeye sandwich has been out since like the beginning of the summer, five months or something. Mm-hmm. But it was the social media push and black Twitter picking it up yeah. that now has the weight at 30 minutes at a fast food chain for a sandwich. Exactly. And that's that's the thing about black Twitter so mm-hmm. often is um, we generate a fervor for things mm-hmm. and then we don't get paid for it. Right. But we're really good at it. Um, and half of the time, what y'all could be doing with that is if you make the right amount of posts, you can put that in a portfolio and become somebody's social media manager wow. real quick. Wow. That's a whole job with benefits. And then if you're really just so pressed about Twitter, you may get verified when you become somebody's social media manager. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to talk a little bit more about your family because mm-hmm. there was an article that was out uh, <laughs> some time ago. Uh, you are the grandson of someone who was really well-known in another part of the country. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fun um, in a way being related to somebody that's very famous in another city. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really dope about that is going around into like black establishments. Like there's this bar by me, love this bar, owned by like, all HBCU graduates. And I'm just kicking it one day. This guy's like, yeah, man, what's going on? Like, what's your name? Like, oh, yeah, my name's Antonio Austin. It's like, where's your family from? Like, Atlanta. It's like, oh, anybody I know? And I was like, probably you from Atlanta? He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, well, you probably know my grandfather. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't know, man, just Google it. and probably come up. This man sits there, Googles my name, looks me in the eye. I was like, my God. <laughs> my God, you, you want them Russell boys? And I'm like, no, no, my name's Antonio Austin. My last name is the last name of another of like a more ancient person. You don't worry about that. Like the grandfather is far removed. I never met the man, but I hear he's dope. I read his book. It was very intriguing. Uh, definitely left out my grandma, but it makes more sense. It mm-hmm. makes sense he was married. You know what I mean, but it, it is it is an interesting thing to kind of hit you. Wow, what did I find out? Maybe I'm trying to think, maybe like I was 28, 29. I don't remember all the way. I remember it was around the time that uh, I first met Mac and we were really forging that friendship that uh, left him asleep sometimes. But yeah, yeah, that was... It was a while back, maybe like 2014. And it's just like a weird wrinkle to add on to your life mm-hmm. because to have somebody come and be like, oh, like here are all these people. First of all, your grandfather isn't your grandfather, which in hindsight made a lot of sense because my grandfather's hair was smooth and silky. And I have the hairline of like a very rough inner city football field. Like, it is just like <laughs> decreasing and moving back and like the goalposts don't stand up. Like, it's, it's just a mess up here. That's why my dad hat collection is strong. Um, but just seeing who my actual grandfather was, seeing the grandfather help raise me, seeing my head in the, in the mirror and it was like, this does make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of like relieve, relieving in a lot of ways. But then what really hit me was understanding how my mom had known this for decades and just held it. Yeah. Right. And it enlightened me a lot to like my mom and my grandmother's relationship and like these random, they love each other so much, but there'd be these random moments of this anger from my mom and me never understanding why. Mm-hmm. And I think, in hindsight, like that was a lot of it, of this hurt of this person not being in her life the, the way she felt he should have been. Or my grandmother having this relationship with this person where she was more or less just dismissed um, and, and, and told to like remove herself from, from, from his life. 
and how she interpreted that was like to get up and go. Um, and that was just, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And I mainly just feel for my mom on that. And I feel for my grandmother on that, of like how this, how this carries them in a lot of ways and how it, it's this thing in their relationship that I'm sure can be really, really hard. I mean, for me personally, it's just like, I don't know if I'm going to be as arrogant as possible. You know, my grandmother did the work. My mom did the work. I already make more money than my mom made when she retired. I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm the success story. I don't need anything else from these people, though they seem really nice. Um, I've met some of them. I met my uh, uncles and aunt, and they are really, really interesting, professional, intelligent people. And it was it was nice to see them and connect with them and go like, oh, yeah, these are these are the Negroes I would like to be. Mm-hmm. I hope to spend more time with them one day. I like their diction. That's nice. It's good. It's strong. It's not like me when I was just a rambunctious Bronx youth. Like, mm-hmm. This is cool. This is great. But still not not really knowing them, you know, not really knowing what it's like to be in that world. Um, but deciding that I'll probably just build it myself. I've spent a lot of time figuring out what I wanted and how I want it to look. And I'm pretty confident I'm on my way. Mm-hmm. And hopefully if I just play my cards right, I can get my mom to put her feet up, even though she's a workaholic. Maybe get my grandmother to relax a little bit, go back to singing her songs in the kitchen. That's it. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I think I got it. So we know that, you know, you can't go into all the details because there's pending legal matters. But just to add some additional context and, you know, a very, very much abridged version, you discovered at the age of 28 or 29 that someone else was your biological grandfather, but not only was someone else, this someone else, your biological grandfather, they were also um, very, very successful and wealthy. And this part is out in the, in the media that your family, your mother, and you can connect it with the descendants who, who were raised with this person. And it was all great mm-hmm. and fine in the beginning until money was in play. Right. So at some point it was discovered that you and your mom were entitled to an inheritance. And that's when the problem started. I mean, I guess in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You you could say that. Um, but I don't know if my mom ever hear this. Maybe she will one day. Maybe we'll end up in a court case. God knows. But I, I think I could speak on behalf of me and my mom when mm-hmm. we say it, we're not really, my mom's not searching for the money. Right, really. right. So she, she, she would happily spend time with them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more so... I think how we were raised, which if anything, maybe when we're talking nature versus versus nurture, the way that they had their, their stuff buttoned up, I think my mom is of a similar ilk with them. Yeah. Oh, no, no. This is just these these are the right, right steps, right? Mm-hmm. Like we shouldn't just, you know, sometimes in our community, we just go by the handshake agreement and then we get mad when it's broken. Um when really you should, you should just go the proper steps. Don't let these steps hurt your personal relationships and you can still seek the personal relationships, but more so just trying to take take the right steps to make it official mm-hmm. or, or make things clear or maybe have the negotiation, the conversations happen outside of y'all. You know, the same reason that a sports athlete has an agent because if that person has to negotiate with their team, maybe feelings get hurt. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I met my uncles, I met my aunt. I think they're pretty dope. Yeah. I think they're really impressive people. I think they're really cool. And we, my mom and I, when we talk about it, we agree. I think I can say that on her behalf. Like, these are these are really dope people. These mm-hmm. are really incredible people. Um, so there's, there's no reason to have some ill will. And you know what? It's not like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not like they, they send us hate mail, right? Right. It's not like they they drag our names in the mud. 
we wouldn't do it now. I don't think they've ever done it to us. Why, why do that? Mm-hmm. That should be avoided at all costs because at the end of the day, I think we it's an addition. It's an addition to the story. It's yeah. not a subtraction in any real way. Um, they're, they're interesting people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, my, my dad's family is way more ancient than them. So like, what am I really, what am I really worried about here? Why am I going to be mad at these people that did something with their lives? My dad can't take care of three kids. So like, hey, mm-hmm. it's what it is. That's, that's the, you know, the, the one that I'm really trying to keep my eye out for. Like, I don't work out to be fit. I work out because I've seen my dad get fat mm-hmm. and it's just me and round. So like, I can't do that. Like those, those are the real life lessons for me. So do you think when it's all said and done that you, you'll have a desire to forge a real relationship with these folks outside of the financial element? Yeah, I don't see a reason why mm-hmm. not to. Again, they seem very interesting. I'd love to spend more time with them. I mean, I'm generally interested in people. It's literally why I do what I do for a living. Right. I'm just intrigued by them. I can't even always say that like, I'm the nicest person or the best person. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess Mac could go sign on that. But like, I, I do find people intriguing. I like different stories. And their story is so much different than mine. So like, why not? Why not learn? Why not build? Yeah. So shifting gears again. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, no, I'm, I'm trying to filter through stories. The first thing that came to my mind was things that um, are not uh, permissible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, when do I be an extraordinary? On a, and it was crazy, though. Y'all, I knew the question was coming. I listened to you the listened show. You listened to the show. I listened to the show. I was there like, damn, you're going to freeze your eggs, girl. Ooh, <laughs> look at you, affluent blacks. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. Um, it was a sacrifice now. Ooh. It was not a drop in the bucket. Let me tell you. Ooh, Lord. Law degrees. <laughs> get your kids there. Like Max says, get your kids in STEM all day. That money's nice. That is the truth. Yeah. Um, but all right, me being extraordinary on an ordinary day, I think maybe being extraordinary on an ordinary day is really focused on, I mean, I try to do it every day. I try to do these small things. I think that's where my real focus is. It, it may be halfway towards being lazy, because sometimes it's hard for me to do the real big gesture. Um, mm-hmm. Y'all can check on my girlfriend. But these small little things I can do. So on the day-to-day, I know that I have these senior associates, I have these associates, I even have like a manager underneath me. And it's not just having them do the work. It's knowing them as people. Because um, I've always found that so much more rewarding um, to like have the inside joke, to to connect with them, to understand where they're coming from. Because it means so much more when you tell someone, hey, I don't know if you're ready to be a manager, when they actually know you give a damn. Yeah. Right? Um, and then give the steps. Don't just leave it there. Don't just tell them. Don't just, never tell someone they're just not good enough. Talk about how you could be there for them. Make it a we thing. It's not a them thing. Because mm-hmm. there's always support you can give. You always a little bit of yourself you can give folks. And I think that's, that's how I try to do it as much as possible. I, I did it. I spent a lot of time doing it within our fraternity once upon a time. Um, I spent a lot of time doing it with my family because I think if you just give a little bit, if you just give a little bit of yourself every day, it doesn't feel as onerous as, you know, putting a whole person on your back, right, and carrying them through. I'm not to say that those gestures aren't worthwhile, and I try to do it when I can. I'm, you know, again, sorry I overslept on Saturday. Y'all would have been there giving out backpacks. Um, Listen, Antonio <laughs> missed the backpack giveaway. He missed it. He was supposed to come volunteer because he overslept. Listen, one, I overslept, and then two, um... Mac makes fun of me all the time, but I got the shared calendar with the girlfriend. So listen, <laughs> I didn't I didn't put the backpacks on the shared calendar. So um, there was a, a date night scheduled to see uh, Good Boys um, on Saturday. So I, I just couldn't make the schedule work. But, you know, next time I got y'all. I feel like your relationship could be a whole other episode in and of itself. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah, you, you got to go to like 
there's another podcast where you can find out more about the relationship. You know, if you want to dig in the archives, is within the the you know, the 26er family. If you want to really learn. Yeah, about yeah. with deep, deep <laughs> yes. in the annals of the internet, <laughs> there's something else out there. Yeah, there's 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 a another uh, a sister or brother sibling podcast with um, some some real hot takes on it. <laughs> uh, might have to delete that now that I got promoted. <laughs> I'm going to talk to Mac about that after. But uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, my, yeah, my relationship is something else. Uh, th- there'll be more on it, I'm sure. Yeah, don't don't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Just quit while you're ahead. Listen, the, the saying goes that anytime I hang out with Mac for more than four hours, I got to find somewhere else to live for six months. So you know, I'm trying to wrap this podcast up as soon as possible. Um, Demarcus, you're getting so much shade on this episode right now. People might have a different view of you when it's all said and done. The truthful view. That's Ooh. what it is. <laughs> He said you were a fraud. That's what he implied, that you're a fraud on this show. There's nothing fraudulent about me because you do about 90% of the talking when I'm on the episodes. <laughs> Hidden in plain sight. So you mentioned your promotion before we let you get out of here. You're now the Associate Director of Planning and Strategy at Wavemaker. What does that even mean, planning and strategy? <laughs> um, It means that I get to help assemble First of all, I'm tracking the spend for different clients, right? And then I'm helping like build out why we're doing things. Mm-hmm. So again, we would go back to that that example of who are you? What's our product? How can we find you? I work with that. And there's the beginning portion, the strategy, how are we going to do it? And there's also proving it out. And I work with our partners in like data analytics to understand what we assumed. Was it true? Is this working out? Do we need to pivot? What are we learning? Do we learn something new about this audience? Can we fold that back into the media bias that we're placing? Can we build a bigger strategy? Do we need to cut back on spin and search? Are people not clicking? Like why? Report that all back to the client, help them come up with a strategy for next steps and just constantly find the person that needs to buy the thing that I need them to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really enjoy about it more than anything is, again, the people. Uh, I kind of figured out a little while back that I was the part of it I'm way better at than the rest of it. And even when I try to train some of the the people that come through this organization, I spend a lot of time going through all my mistakes. Um, for every time that they do something, they're like, oh my God, I feel like I cost the company $10,000. And I'll go like, well, let me tell you the time I overreported our earnings by $36 million. <laughs> like, I, I just, I like, I feel like I've done all the dumbest things. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be proven out that if y'all take your time and you invest in other people and let people invest in you, you can grow here. And I try to be the first person to do that investing in other people. And that is way more rewarding. I mean, I hope my client doesn't get mad, but that's way more rewarding than anything we truly do in media mm-hmm. is watching people just be good at something or feel fulfilled or feel successful. Um, so yeah, when my title says associate director, really all that means is just like, people nurturer in a lot of ways like that that's what I want to do because really I think a lot of these people here are smarter than me mm-hmm. like hands down so if I just get out of their way and support them in that then I get to look successful at least and then worst case scenario when I do get fired maybe they'll hire me as like a pity hire and that is fine y'all that is perfectly fine by me um and then one thing I would like to really add about what I do is it's not just the planning and, and strategy part of it I do appreciate this company that I work at um, I'm a real company man out here. Listen, you know, sitting right by the front door, uh, as Mac might tell me. But they let me start working with other people of color within this organization to build out groups to support the people of color here. That's great. And that means a lot to me. And then having some of that responsibility means a lot to me. So, you know, that's that's as, as much part of what I do and how I define myself here as anything I'm doing on a day-to-day tracking somebody's $10 million media spend, $150 media spend is is making sure that people grow and feel successful. I mean, to go on like a full rant, if y'all allow me, 
in this industry, they'll hire almost anybody, mm-hmm. truthfully, because we're not looking for hard skills as much. We're looking for just traits. Um, and that can include people of all walks of life. The problem is when you look up at leadership, it often looks the same over and over and over again. And when we run those numbers, when we talk to our P&C teams, what it's called here, people and culture rather than HR, because HR can be a big, scary uh, term for some folks, it's that people fall out. They come in, they're gone in six months. Maybe they get promoted once, they want out. Get to manager at best. Yeah, we get some people of color making it to manager. But after that, I won't deal with this anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the politics of it all. God bless me. I love the politics because mm-hmm. it's just being shady to people with a smile. Pretty much. That's yeah. across all all of corporate America. Yeah. yeah. I find it delightful. Um, As someone that was always the smallest friend, I think it's great because I've been practicing this since the school bus. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what it's like? having people have a slap boxing match and you want to read a newspaper when you're 12, you got to negotiate some things to not get hit in the head. You got to really negotiate some stuff. So um, helping people get to that level, this group that we have called Melanin and, and, and giving them that safe space to say, no, no, you can be a manager one day. You can be an associate director. Y'all can be my boss. You could be a CEO of a media agency. And it doesn't have to be a multicultural one too, by the way, because that happens a lot. Like black folks end up kind of coalescing in a multi-ethnic group that is here specifically to find African-American and Latino and Asian-American audiences. No, no, no. You can be just as smart as anyone else in, in this room and you can go find the 150 household income investor and market to him too. Absolutely. So what's next on the horizon for Antonio Austin, a.k.a. Point Dexter Brown? Uh Honestly, it's probably going to be me in this office for another 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, probably running it right back tomorrow from like eight to eight and just grinding it out as I learn a couple of new things for a new client that I have. Um, but outside of work, just trying to spend a little bit more time with the people I care about, family and friends. Uh, I'm definitely one of those people that get lost in work sometimes. It's been a way, way too much time talking about it, defining myself through it and it may be just like a real northerner thing because I know every time, every time I go back home, when I say home, I mean like back to my family in Atlanta because it's still, even outside of like, you know, my grandfather's side, like my family's hub is Atlanta. And, you know, I'm over here just talking about work and they're looking at me like, well, if you don't shut up and drink this <laughs> Hennessy, like if you don't eat this fried fish, I won't, when I asked you how you were, I didn't care a thing about paid social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so like finding, finding space to talk about the things that I really enjoy outside of that, right? Outside of what I do on a day to day. And, and having those connections with people that I really care about, about things so far removed from what's going on in my job. That's what's next for me. Okay. And where can people find you online? Oh, don't. Don't. <laughs> I'll find you, though. We're, we're sent. Yeah, you finding everybody else online, but they can't find you? Yeah, like, that's, that's the thing. Like, there's a reason, <laughs> y'all. Do the math on that. I work in this, therefore, I don't give out my social media. And I, I, I love the question, knowing what the answer was going to be. I mean, if you want to follow somebody, you can follow It's Penny's World. She's a, a wonderful mix of a Shih Tzu, a little bit of a long-haired Chihuahua, uh, and she's the light of my world. So <laughs> you can do that. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening... There's nowhere to find Antonio Austin online. I know where to find him, but I'm going to keep that a secret. <laughs> DeMarcus said he's snitching. We might put it, put it out there anyway. I, I mean, mean, we're media. We have we have to give people access to information, the information that we have. I mean, listen, if they are that smart, they'll figure it out. It. We've said it on the podcast. We have said it. We, we actually have said it. It's how I defined myself growing up. It's how people define me. This I know. This, so this like, That's why I was like, oh, in my, my mind, I was like, that's where that came from. Okay, yeah. I got it. So, All right. Yeah, if they really about it, yeah, come see me. I'm still on private, though. <laughs> so 
listen. You might not be able to find Antonio, but you can find the December 26th podcast. If you have not followed us on social media or subscribed to this podcast or shared it, or promoted it and you are an avid listener, shame on you. Please do that. Please do that. <laughs> tell your friends, tell your cousins, tell everybody. We are we don't have a show if you don't listen. So make sure you do that. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.